0: Rhythm in this family retreat of lots of activity bordering on chaos at times and then quiet and subtleness and peace. And even if you don't feel peaceful, it's a pretty peaceful room right now. Many times I've sat in this room and been nourished by the stillness that I feel in this room. So I feel some of it now with all of you. I didn't feel it so much when all the kids were in here. I felt something else that was wonderful then, but I didn't feel the quiet. <coughs> it's one of the, I, one of the great things that Spirit Rock does is this family retreat. It makes me very happy that it exists and. And the uh, just the fact that our children and our families can have this experience I think is quite important and uh, and also I think it's really important for all of us and uh, everyone not just families and kids and parents but the, the people who staff it to take care of it all to be nourished by the generosity and and goodness of so many people, goodwill of so many people, come together to make this happen, and it's very nourishing to me to have this happen, and to appreciate that this too is Buddhist practice. Part of my training in Buddhist monasteries was came with a great appreciation that Buddhism is a training, first and foremost, not a meditation practice. And training means that we're learning how to bring ourselves to all aspects of our life and that the work and the relationships we have with people and the responsibilities we have that these are really part of the training of how to find our balance, how to find our freedom, how to find our compassion and and um, It isn't like the real practice to discover those things is on the cushion meditating. And everything else is kind of like the unfortunate things we have to do to get to the cushion. Um, I like to see it, if I have to see it in those terms, I like to see it the other way around. That um, meditation practice is the support for the real practice, which is off the cushion. And, um, One of the great practices is in family with children, and it's. Uh, I think it's a uh, one of the greatest forms of practice in Buddhism that can be. Um, though, if you, you know, I, I have a PhD in Buddhism, right? So I've, I've read a few books on Buddhism, a few of the ancient texts in Buddhism, and and um, I can tell you that there's not a lot of instructions of how to do this training, Buddhist training. Um, as parents. And I think it's one of the things that many of us are exploring and discovering here in the modern West. I think in the modern world, not just the West, but I think it's the, you know, around the globe, people are interested in Buddhist practice. Buddhists, no matter where they are, are beginning to practice as lay people in a way that, in numbers and in quality and and in sincerity, in a way that has been very rare in the history of Buddhism. It's people who had the time, the ability for meditation practice and really strong intensive practice tended to be monastics and not lay people, and that's changed dramatically in in the last, I, I would, certainly in the last 100 years, maybe in the last 60 years, that's a big change. And so all of you coming to Spirit Rock and a family retreat are in many big ways pioneers So that in a few years and 50 years, I don't know when. I'm sure after I've long gone, because I I I'm not going to figure this parent thing out. Uh, But uh, we'll 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 produce manuals. You know, I don't don't know if manuals is the right word, but uh, we'll produce um, treatises about family practice and how it's all done, and and, you know, be our contribution for this wonderful lineage of Buddhism in a way that, you know, we, because we don't have the resources. We have teachings we can apply, but actually how it applies to parenting and family, it's a whole new thing. And in that way, you're pioneers. And if you feel uh, occasionally <laughs> challenged in your equanimity and your wisdom and your compassion, your love, and whatever, your peace, you know, whatever it might be, and you challenged to figure out, how do I practice in this too? Um, to take refuge in that you're a pioneer. <clears throat> We're a generation of people who are kind of really discovering how to do this. And I don't feel like I am I know how to do it myself yet. I'm getting little glimmers, um, one of the, uh, I should have had a lot of kids, uh, just a lot more kids for two reasons, two reasons. Uh, one, so that I can get a lot of practice. And the other is so that the younger kids could have gotten the benefit from what I learned from the older, <laughs> parenting the older ones. It a little bit of pity. I learned all this stuff and, and you know, then they grow up and like, you know, where are those skills going to go? <laughs> anyway, so it's a great learning, but I feel like I'm very much still learning in the process. And then when I come to the family retreat, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm asked to be the teacher for it, but I feel like I'm just... Uh, you know, trying to find my way in parenting, just like you are. Um, my f- uh, I came here first, the uh, first time I came about 10 years ago, I came as a parent, not as a teacher. And uh, it was one of the most difficult retreats I ever did. It was coming with a five-year-old and being a single parent here. Uh, I was exhausted. And it took me a year or two to figure out, uh, mostly I figured out I, not to go to everything you know the kids were off in a program I went to my room and uh, you know that's how I kind of regained my balance because if I just kind of plugged into all the things I could you know just follow the schedule the parents do this and this and this it didn't work for me maybe it works for some of you but um, it was a challenge to be here and then as my kids grew up it became easier because they're older they don't need so much so anyway I feel very much like I'm a trying to discover how to do this with all of you. Equanimity is a really uh, central state, quality, practice in Buddhism. Sometimes it's considered to be the penultimate or the crown jewel of Buddhism. Even though many of us maybe don't relate to the word equanimity because it seems kind of indifferent or aloof or neutral and like, you know, afraid if, you know, if someone is equanimous, they're not really there for us, like you know, too, too indifferent. Um, but it's really considered the, the crown jewel because it's so precious, it's so wonderful, and so sublime, and uh, when it's very, very strong, and that's, that's one of the advantages of meditation practice is that it's possible to crystallize these different qualities of uh, heart and mind in a way that they stand out and they're in highlight and relief by themselves and not, they're not, in the shadow or covered over by other things or you know, just to see so, and to have the, crystal, the crystallizing equanimity in the heart and the mind is one of the most sublime and satisfying and meaningful, beautiful experiences that I've ever known in my life. And that's a really quite something to taste it and feel it and, and then to know the benefits of it. The, um, Uh, I think it's a very important quality for a parent, because um, especially when the kids are younger, but probably always, as probably many of you know, that uh, we teach maybe more, we influence our children more from how we are than what we say, what we tell them, or things like that. And so the idea of how you are is really important. And one of the ways of how you are is your emotional being, your emotional presence, attitude about your life and what's going on, the kids pick up. And so uh, if you're anxious, and you're anxious a lot, or you're alarmed, and you're alarmed a lot about life, kind of the, maybe the, some people the under, kind of background or under story of everything is some feeling of fear, anxiety, alarm, anger, um, inadequacy, um, there's all kinds of values that get passed on, not through words and behavior, but just in the mood that we have. And um, and it's very powerful what goes, what goes on, so they pick it up. So if we're alarmed or afraid a lot, um, then the kids pick it up. And there's plenty of reasons to be <laughs> alarmed or afraid as parents, but um, it's, um, you know, but uh, how do you, what do you convey to them in that situation? I, I, one of the great uh, mo- moments I had with a Buddhist monastic, there was, um, was a very senior Buddhist monk here in America, a senior teacher, years and 30 years, 40 years of practice, and a person I have a lot of respect for, the depth of his practice and all that. I went for a walk with him together with my one of my sons, when my son was, I don't know how old he was, seven maybe, or something, eight. And, um, and my son had a scooter. So we, the two of us were walking around the neighborhood where I live, and, and, um, and my son was scooting around in front of us, behind us, around us. We were talking. And then we came to a hill, and my son went zooming down the hill and the poor monk lost his equanimity. Oh. <laughs> he was so, you know, like that's dangerous, like oh no, you know. <laughs> and um uh, I'd been on the hill before with my son and then uh, there was danger but I think it was, you know, I, in all things considered, it, I thought it was more important to the accepting of my son's, my son's experimentation with life and gravity and slopes and and uh, then it was to try to convey to him at that moment, you know, that you know alarm and fear and you kind of control him and everything, but just let him go and be free. And one um, of one of the, one of the um, uh, stories that have been very, had a big impact on me uh, that happened here at Spirit Rock, was m- m- teaching someone about the influence we have on our children was uh, there was a, a woman here I know I was a teacher for her and good number of retreats long retreats, long time practitioner, very mature practitioner in many ways and she got cancer and she had a young child and so for about a c- couple of years she'd come on retreat and part of our conversation was her treatments and what she was doing and she was doing all she could to, uh, really for the sake of her child to stay alive. And you know it looked for a while looked what looked like it was going well and at some point it became clear that uh, the cancer was getting the upper hand and she was going to die. And she was here on retreat just meeting with her in one of the rooms over here. And she was really angry. And it's reasonable you know. It's, I think her I forget her son or daughter was about 11. So that's, you know, that's a pretty awful time for a parent to die for a child. Maybe they're all awful. And, um, and but she was really angry. And uh, I, I, I suggested to her that how she died would have the biggest impact on, a huge impact for the rest of her child's life. And if she died angrily, that would teach her child something about life and death and kind of something would be passed on that could easily go on for a long, long time about what the child's relationship to death is and being alive and all that. But if she could die peacefully, that that would create a very different condition for her, for the child. And that it was up, you know, it was up to her what kind of conditioning she wanted to present to her child. And that made a big impact on her And uh, I kind of didn't have much contact with her after that, but it seemed that that turned her in a certain direction. And after she died, her husband contacted me and uh, to uh, say that, uh, to describe her peaceful death and how uh, she died peacefully in bed at home and the child and the husband were there next to the bed. And when she had died, her last breath had passed um, the child went up, got out, went to the garden with the husband, father, and, um, and uh, picked a flower from the garden and came back and put it on the mother's chest. And I kind of thought, oh, I think maybe the right conditioning, right for the child. If the mother was gonna die, what do you teach? What do you pass on? So what does it take to be equanimous, be peaceful in that kind of situation? What do you do when it's so awful, you know, it's so bad? And how do we rise to that occasion? So the conditioning, how we are has big impact on our children. And this is a fundamental uh, part of Buddhist teaching that uh, Buddhist practice and the maturity in Buddhist practice has a lot to do with the conditions we put in place. Uh, I think it's very easy to think that it's in the moment, like it's up to me to practice and do something and accomplish something, get concentrated or do something, and we certainly have a big responsibility in our practice. But part of the responsibility is to put the conditions in place that support the growth and development of all kinds of qualities. And so, both we try to create the conditions for equanimity, and we try to, and we see that equanimity itself is a condition that supports the growth of other qualities. The Buddhist tradition says that one of the uh, benefits of equanimity is that it purifies loving kindness. Isn't that nice? So I think of it maybe like pure water. You know, the water's muddy and gets all clear and pure, so that our loving kindness gets all clear and pure with the 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 addition of equanimity. It also, the tradition says, that um, in uh, in its mature form, I guess. Um, there is no compassion without equanimity, and there's no equanimity without compassion. So this is really heart qualities. It's really part connected to something deep inside of us. In case some of you thought that equanimity is a kind of mental thing or mind thing. And so uh, the qualities of balance, equanimity of balance, um, to kind of consider what are the things I need to do to be balanced, to find balance. And I think too, I, because I talk to a lot of people in their practice, I think there's a lot of people who um, um, think that you're only supposed to find your balance by having a good practice, like a strong mindfulness. I just be more mindful and just kind of ply myself and all that and more. But, uh, and there's an undervaluing of conditions, creating the conditions, and an important thing is uh, uh, um, making behavioral choices, having priorities, and changing your life, <laughs> um, you know, if you can. Uh, if, uh, if it's just, you know, you, you have a really hectic, busy life and running around doing too many things, and then you add to that, I'm gonna be mindful so I can be calm, you know, as if, it, you know, you can just get it all. Right. Uh, you know, it's not really healthy. And sometimes it's really important to look at the, the full range of what we're doing in our lives and make wise choices, set priorities. And sometimes behavioral choices are really important to help create the balance being centered. And without some space and time and, you know, uh, leisure time or time off or certain activities maybe are not conducive and helpful. The, um, I mean, I don't, uh, I've had discussion with parents who, uh, for whom alcohol and marijuana was their way of coping with parenting, and it wasn't really working. It created calm in a kind of in a certain kind of way, but you know it wasn't the, wasn't creating the conditions for long-term well-being for the family. It was only when they stopped using those things that things changed. Or so the behavioral choices and uh, looking at our priorities is part of balance and stepping back. And in that regard. Uh, one of the things that I've been I've been slow to learn in Buddhism, it's kind of a little, slightly embarrassing to realize how slow it's taken me. I, I'm still learning. It's embarrassing how slow. That's why I'm still a Buddhist teacher because I'm a slow learner. Is uh, how much responsibility we have to take for ourselves. And there's no magical thinking in Buddhism. There's like this, this magic, like a, I practice and magically things will be okay. Uh, it's really about uh, coming back and really finding and taking the the Dharma seat, taking taking responsibility for our minds, what our minds do and all that. This is really the seat of practices is no magical thinking. What do I do? And how do I get strong? How do I get in this practice? What kind of inner strengths do I develop? So this idea of calm, balance, confidence, uh, patience, these are all inner strengths that are good to develop that support equanimity. Uh, We don't just wait for equanimity to happen, we create the conditions for it to happen. So if you have a lack of confidence, what can you do to develop confidence, both in yourself, but also confidence in uh, the practice? Because the more confident you're in the practice and can put yourself into the practice, the less you're gonna be tossed around by things. Um, So to take responsibility here, show up and practice, it's up to me. One of the things that's sometimes said is we can't really control the world. And, and um, there are enough times we can't control our children, um, but we can control ourselves or part of ourselves, the essence of ourselves somehow. And so to, when we can't control the situation around us, can we at least monitor ourselves enough so that we can stay balanced, so we can stay not caught by the situation not lost, not distracted, but really stay present uh, in an effective way. To give you a little story that's not so dramatic, but it was very instructive for me that I, I thought about a lot afterwards in terms of my relationship to my kids. When my older son was maybe five, he was pretty young, for, and um, he came out of the bathroom one day, dressed like a 1970s disco king. Uh, you know, I didn't even know we had those kinds of things in my house that would, he had his hair slicked back like with water, I guess, and he had a gold necklace, you know, kind of around his throat and he had some kind of you know, pants that had stripes up the. then, I had some kind of shirt, I don't know where, and he came out and like, what? <laughs> And, you know, given my background, you know, being a hippie and a Buddhist monk and everything, um, this is not, did not meet my approval. <laughs> this was not, this was like, uh-oh. This is not going a good way. You know, because I could see, you know, disco king. and I don't know what I was thinking, but, but that was my reaction. and oh, like he joined the marines or something. <laughs> my funny mind, how I see things. So. But I knew immediately that um, this was not for me to get involved. This was him, this was his life. I don't know what it was about him and his karma, his whatever, but this was his choice. He was making a choice. And that my job was to get out of the way of that choice and let it take its course, something. So maybe maybe this was gonna be the beginning of a future. (laughs) And I saw the moment when, you know, he, who he is going to be he was took, took birth and he was going to go in a certain direction and who am I to decide, you know, his choices. And so this idea of being equanimous or accepting of the choices he made, I, s- I said, oh, I think as he grow, be, gets older and older, I think I have to step step away and allow him to be himself and not be what I want him to be. And so how do I hold that then? Is Spacious heart. How, how how do I allow for something like that? How do I allow, for, allow for my children to become something that I don't want, a kind of person that necessarily I don't really want them to be? And um, so that that little disco moment only lasted you know a few hours. In the end, there were, you know, apparently there's no danger now. But uh, but that was uh, and that was very instructive for me. And I've continued to think about this as a lesson to learn. And where's the line of acceptance and allowing my children to make their own choices and go their own way? And when do I step in to guide it, correct for it, change it? You know what? You know it's not so easy to know, and it's not so e- always easy to know when and where. And so, uh, part of my equanimity uh, that uh, has been uh, being equanimous with my mistakes with not knowing, with not being sure. And uh, one of the sources of equanimity for me has been um, um, the idea that I hope I give my children just enough wisdom, practice, sensibility, something, so that um, if I made mistakes in raising them, they have the ability to correct for it when they become an adult. (laughs) And that helps me because I don't have to get it right. You know, it's just, you know, I'm not, you know, they have to take responsibility, and perhaps it's true that, uh, you know, and the other thing I've sometimes thought—I don't know if it's true, and I don't know if this is helpful for any of you—but it helps me—is um, the idea that uh, you'll never get it right as a parent. It's not possible. The universe is not built that way, um, and uh, so all of us have had to deal with the legacy of our own life experiences and parenting and where we grew up and all the things we did and we have to at some point become adults and, and regardless of what our life circumstances are, we have to step into it and take responsibility for ourselves in it. And uh, no matter how difficult it's been, or how wonderful it's been, we have to take responsibility to find our ability to be at home, to be at peace, to not be reactive and fighting or or chasing and to, you know, but to really be able to sit and find ourselves deeply at home in our hearts and here. And uh, and so for our children, for my children, uh, I can't get it right for them. Uh, some, but at some point they have to take that responsibility for themselves. And that helps me now, not to give up at all, but to engage in this process in a way where I have more equanimity. I do my best I can and that hopefully helps One of the most important forms of equanimity or uh, pieces of equanimity uh, has to do with uh, what we'll do, I'll talk about Saturday, the wisdom side of equanimity, the understanding side, is not to take things personally. And uh, and there's a uh, the word uh, upeka means overview, to have the step back and have a kind of bird's eye view of the situation and look down and, and understand the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture to um, uh, to not learn how not to take things personally. So some of you probably had the experience of your kids saying something to you that was really mean and, uh, and just, you know, you were pretty equanimous, like, wow, you know. You realize that your job was just to kind of hold it and make space for it and not react to it, not kind of treat it, treat it like the end of the world because they say, I hate you. Or my son said to me or to us, he said, I was born in the wrong family. You know, he probably doesn't remember, probably didn't remember the next day. And I think it had a lot to do with uh, baseball, yeah. how he came to that conclusion. And so, you know, it wasn't didn't it wasn't so lasting, but but it was a kind of like, you know, at the moment of hearing that, like, gee, I was about to catastrophize from that, like, oh no. Um, but I had enough wisdom to kind of step back and say, well, Let's just make a lot of space for this. And if I react to this and make a big deal of it, it might become a big deal. But if I just make space for it and allow for it and just let it be there in the floating in the air uh, with kindness, then um, maybe it'll just drift away. So probably all of you have some experience of that, of holding some statement of equanimity. And maybe sometimes you have experience of the opposite, not holding it that way. Um, but learning how to take things uh, not personally is really important so as parents you know you go in this you know, so I'm, I'm probably some of you know the experience when the kids are really small you go into the grocery store to go shopping and somewhere halfway through that uh, visit to the store uh, the kid is screaming in uncontrollable way because they can't you, you say no you cannot have that cake you know they see the, you know, whatever they want you know you can't have it or something and my, my son, uh, we went I remember going to the supermarket with him and and he just like wanted everything. Can I have that, can I have that, can I have that? I looked down at him and said, I think you've been, uh, I think uh, I, uh, a wanting troll has entered you. Like you know, you've been possessed by a wanting troll. I maybe depersonalize it for him, it'd be helpful. And he l- looked at me like I was crazy. He wanted, wanted, but then, you know, then this thing they want, you say you can't have, and then they have a temper tantrum in this grocery store. And you think this, everyone in the store is gonna call protective services, because the way this kid's screaming, you know, like, it must be, you know, people are wondering, what kind of parent are you? And so, how not to take it personally, right? How to make space, and you know, well, so, so people think that protective services should be called, that the kid's screaming in the store. You know better. You know that this is a temper temperum You know that what has to happen is, I don't know, you know, whatever has to happen. There's so many, uh, so many, so many ways that parents learn to take things not personally. That you know, when I probably also when the kids are really small. would you have experience when they're really small, of of not having time to take a shower? You know, and I used to take a shower a lot. You know, and. I'd show up in public places, having been clean, <laughs> but they're not caring. <laughs> you know, not having time for it because it's like so so intense with our kids. we had intense kids. And so, how do we t- not take things personally, and how do we do that in a wise way? Um, uh, the um, you know, if, if you know someone, if someone tells you that they're really stressed out and tired, or if you know your kid is really stressed out and tired and hungry and and uh, you know that's recipe for challenges, and, and, and so they start snapping at you and getting upset. You know it's not personal, it has a lot to do with their tiredness and the hunger. And so you try to hold it spaciously and feed them and give them a nap or do something. But uh, you know, don't take it too personally that they snap at you and get angry in those circumstances. So um, sometimes we have the overview, we have understanding of the causes and conditions that we can hold it more in a more relaxed way, an accepting way. And I think that's a very powerful lesson for the children to see that we're being responsible and engaged and meet them, but without being caught by whatever drama they're bringing up. They get they they witness someone who has somehow, you know, doesn't get upset, doesn't get upset, does not caught by it. So when my son was young, I remember he had temper tantrums at home sometimes, and really angry. And uh, I'd have to pick him up and I'd bring him into his bedroom, and I'd tell him, uh, 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 it's a, as long as you don't throw anything, it's okay for you to be angry in here, but you can't leave. And I'd make sure he wouldn't leave because I would close his bedroom door and stay in the bedroom with him, but I'd sit down with my back against the door. So he wasn't gonna get out. <laughs> but I was gonna stay present. I wasn't gonna leave him and abandon him in his anger. I was, I'm here with you, and I'm gonna stay, but you can be angry, and um, but you can't throw anything, and uh, and uh, because I mean maybe there were wise other things I could have done. There were wiser. That's all I knew how to do, <laughs> and uh, and that was a way of staying kind and open and put the boundaries that needed. I thought needed to be happen. So that hoping that would teach him something. They're very different than if I slapped him or locked him in his room until he had it finished. I stayed with him, and that something. So don't don't take it personally. Don't get caught. But one of the really fascinating things about Buddhist practice, one of the great things, it's a kind of a wonderful sometimes quite amusing things about it all, is this idea that um, yes don't take it personally, but don't take yourself personally either. And uh, for many people that's where they get hooked by taking them being, you know so you, you get angry, you get upset, you have desires, you have all these thoughts like bubble up and all that. And, uh, but how do you treat yourself uh, with equanimity? How do you treat yourself with the same open acceptance? How do you model for yourself that you're not caught by your inner life as it unfolds? I said that, you know, we can't, we can't always control the situation, but we can always control ourselves. But s- sit down and meditate, and sometimes that's not clear, that you can control yourself, because we have a lot of things bubble up, and, you know, feelings, emotions, thoughts that happen. But we can, uh, we, have, we have a responsibility to, or we have the, the ability to respond, we have that kind of capacity to, no matter what arises inside of us, to try to meet it, try to be with it in a way that is balanced, meet it in a way where we try to see it, we're present for it rather than caught in it. And one of the ways to do this, a sim- very simple way, is to, um, whatever arises within whatever's going on, be curious about it. What is this? even ask the question, what is this? What's going on? And if you really ask, if you get behind this question, what is this, this curiosity, this interest, what is this and look at it, Uh, then to some degree you're not caught in it and you change the inner ecology and you're moving towards equanimity, you're moving towards balance, you're moving to not being caught. And if you can really bring strength to staying with, what is this? Let's observe this. Give strength to it. Develop strength, the ability to do it. Believe in it, have confidence in it. What is this? What is this? What is it? Look, look, look. That's a protection from getting swept into it and caught in all the different things and go on inside. And take responsibility for your taking, coming back to this, what is this? Being interested. Look, let's be present. And as you look more carefully, then you can start seeing, you don't have to see this inner life personally. Uh, the causes and conditions arise and pass. And you can intervene, you can let go, you can develop certain things, but you can also just see it as causes and conditions. And, uh, and not take it personally. Not, def- not take it personally means you don't have to define yourself by it. You don't have to use it to come to conclusions about the kind of person you are. Um, the great thing about Buddhist practice Buddhist practice is the, the permission you have to be yourself without needing to be, without using it to define yourself, without using it to say, this is who I am. I have to be this way. You can just be. You can just be with all your thoughts and feelings and everything you are and not take it so personally. It's a great thing. Um, we take responsibility for ourselves, but we don't take it personally. And then as I said, I think maybe I said this here to everyone a few days ago, um, the great balance in Buddhism, I think, one wonderful attitude that I, th- I picked up, and maybe it's not said explicitly, is that the way Buddhism sees the individual, sees the person, is you can, uh, you can say with confidence that uh, you yourself, are the most important person in the world, but you're not that important. <laughs> and, and those two together work really great. Those two, to a tremendous respect and valuing of each individual as the most important person. You yourself, imagine that, that's where it begins. You're the most important person for yourself, but you're not that important. So don't take it so personally. So both value yourself and hold it lightly is the point. Value yourself and don't get caught in your dramas that goes on. And if you, in, in the, keep coming back, see if you can take that step back into yourself where you can take responsibility even for, so you don't get caught in all the different chaos that can be going on inside of you. What is this? What's happening now? come back and keep doing it, keep doing it and see if that can be your strength where you take refuge rather than getting lost and swept up in uh, what you get caught in. And the final word about equanimity is that, um, basically what equanimity means is we're not getting agitated by the circumstances we find ourselves in. We don't get, uh, we don't start spinning out by the circumstances we get into. That's kind of ultimately what it means. And one of the most useful ways, conditions that support equanimity is to be curious and interested about how you get agitated. So if if you don't have to take it so personally how you get agitated, how you get caught and everything, that helps. Then you can look at it more carefully, you can look at it more honestly. And as you understand it better and better how it works, how agitation does, its trick to, how, it, how it tricks you and how it pulls you into its orbit, and then you can learn to be wiser about it, and more equanimous. And, and then it's more realistic, the equanimity, because it's based on the understanding of how you get caught, as opposed to some idealism, I'm supposed to be equanimous, as if it's some abstract idea that pulls you away. So that's why coming back to this observing, looking, being mindful, being curious, uh, that's a phenomenal condition and support uh, for uh, discovering your equanimity. So I hope that um, the theme that we have this uh, week is uh, valuable for you, supportive of you. And uh, don't worry whatsoever if you lose your equanimity here at Spirit Rock, it's probably one of the best places to lose it. Because uh, you know we're all in it together. We're all here to support each other, and part of the conditions for equanimity here, I, where we hope is that uh, to be in a supportive community. So thank you. So I think that is done. While we're waiting for dawn. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.